Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm back again, this time with chapter one of my new book, Custom Justice. Uh, this one is going to um, involve a little bit of a trigger warning in advance. I do get into some pretty difficult subject material here. I may not always remember to put a trigger warning at the beginning of every episode, but I am going to try to remember that. Pretty much every episode throughout this entire book is going to have something that may actually cause... Um, some some PTSD for other people who have experienced things like uh, childhood abuse, um, rape, sexual assault, uh, trafficking, anything along those lines, any kind of violence, it's there. Um, it does exist, and the only reason it exists in the book is because it heavily existed in my life. So that's your trigger warning. You are officially warned. I'm going to get into that in just a moment. I'll be starting chapter one, and it's called Juniper. But for right now, a word from our sponsor. Richard's eyes were the kind of blue that would inspire either nightmares or fantasy dreams. They were of a crystal blue color, almost the same shade as my own father's. When I first thought to myself that they were haunting eyes, I never imagined how right I would be. I blinked several times to make them vanish and was once more back in the room facing Naomi. I stared across the musty room at my new therapist, Naomi, telling her all about how my day had gone. As usual, her only response for the next hour would be a high-pitched, nasally drawn out and muffled, hmm, with an extra emphasis on the exhalation needed to create the beginning sound. I hated therapists in general. She was nice enough, and I didn't have the typical suspicions of her intentions because of how we met. But I still didn't trust anyone fully, Naomi included. I'd been through too much to trust blindly. Naomi knew this. It was one of the first things I ever told her. I needed her to know where we stood before we could really begin anything at all. I'd sat in basically that same spot, in the same position, on the same broken couch covered in a dirty blanket feeling entirely too vulnerable. There was no way she could have known that it was in a very similar room in an abandoned mill on top of a dirty blanket when one boy I'd known raped me in secret when I was 17 years old. I'd never told anyone about that, including Naomi. Instead, I told her about the therapist I saw when I was a teen because my parents forced me to, and how the therapist basically told me everything that had happened to me was my fault and that I needed to make the effort to have a relationship with my father in order to fix myself. Then I was promptly given a prescription for several drugs I didn't need and sent on merry, merry little way with my parents. I had Klonopin, which I understood is supposed to treat seizures and panic disorders, Paxil, which was an antidepressant and anxiety treatment, Prozac, yet another antidepressant, also treats OCD and panic attacks. If I had actually taken all of them, I'd have been so drugged up that I wouldn't have known my own name. Naomi listened to all of this with her occasional high-pitched nasally response of, hmm, as though I'd said something deeply profound. Sometimes, if I came close to tears, she would make the exact same sound, but at a lower pitch as though struggling to show sympathy and not really knowing how best to express it other side from a noise instead of words. She asked finally if that's where my fear of medications came from. No, I told her. That came from when I was four. And of course, I had to elaborate. 
When I was only four years old, my mom took both my older brother and myself to the doctor to see what was wrong with us. She had some friends with unruly kids who'd all been put on Ritalin. She liked how the kids were so well-behaved after that. Of course she did, I thought to myself now as an adult. The kids turned into obedient little zombies. The doctors diagnosed my brother that day with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, also known as ADHD, but they told my mother that I was actually fine, just energetic. My mom, being the wise woman that she was, decided for herself that the doctors were wrong about me. There was definitely something wrong with me, she insisted, and the miracle drug of Ritalin would cure it all. She started breaking my brother's pills in half and giving them to me. He had just turned eight in July, so she figured with me being half his age, half his dose would be plenty. In order to conserve pills, she just didn't give them to us on the weekends. As a not-so-random coincidence, that year was also when the sexual abuse started. My brother molested me. My much more serious behavioral issues began. A year later, my mom took me back in for another evaluation. She stopped giving me the Ritalin about a week before that, which pretty much ensured that I would have even more behavioral issues at the doctor's office. At five years old, I was given my very own prescription of Ritalin for attention deficit disorder after already having been on the highly addictive drug for over a year. I was the latest science project slated for observation. I told Naomi about some of my fond memories from that time too. I didn't want to dwell on all the bad things constantly, and my automatic defense has always been to figure out ways to add humor. I'll laugh at my own pain out of nervousness, but if I can make someone else laugh at something truly funny, I feel like I've gained a little piece of my soul back. Naomi got to hear about when we would go to the pick-your-own orchard. My favorite part was picking strawberries. I only have a momentary flash of a memory from that, of my mother asking me if I was eating more than I was putting in the basket, and me denying it in spite of the red stains all around my mouth. I'm not eating them, I argued. She laughed, called me a fibber, and asked if I was eating about half of what I was putting in the basket then instead. I remember I had a hole in the knee of my jeans, and there was even a little bit of strawberry juice stain on the fringes from the knee hole. I wore Velcro shoes that day, and I genuinely have no idea what shirt I was wearing, but my mother had on a black and white sleeveless sweater. My memory from that exact moment in time is quite vivid. I remembered when we would pick corn. The round laundry basket would sit in a clear area, and my family would go into the corn and start picking the ears, then tossing them out to me. My job would be to pick them up and put them in the basket, being careful to avoid the hurled ears so that I wasn't rendered unconscious. As I was picking up an ear of corn, another would come at me and land nearby. I'd run over to pick it up in time to have another land near the basket. This went on for a while until one stray ear got a little too much of my attention and I looked up just barely in time to have another land squarely on my forehead, just above my left eye. I remember falling backward into the trampled earth and though I don't remember the tears, I do remember the scream of pure anger that came out of my mouth even before my head hit the ground. I remember the little cowboy boots I loved so much. They were a gift from my uncle in Arkansas. I refused to tell my mother when they were getting too small because I knew they wouldn't be replaced. We couldn't afford such nice things and those boots were an extravagance. I ended up with an ingrown toenail and my mom had to pluck the tissue 
I, of course, called it Kleenex because I didn't know the difference from the corner of my big toenail with tweezers. It was incredibly painful, but she never believed me. She said she was barely touching me. Eventually, I had to be taken to the doctors, and they had to give me a shot in the knuckle of my big toe to fix things. I sat on my father's lap, and I screamed in pain, crying in agony. He cried, too. As sad as it is, it's one of my fondest memories of my father because I could tell in that moment that he loved me. They took me to Wendy's for Frosty afterward, and to this day, I can't have a Frosty without remembering that moment as my father shook with sobs because someone was hurting his little girl. It brings tears to my own eyes even now. His physical affection was so rare that it was always such a special memory for me, and one I occasionally wish I could recreate without that amount of pain that accompanied it, of course. I remembered my troubled cousin Kyle coming to visit around then, too. I might have been closer to three at that point. I didn't know what he'd gotten into trouble for, but I remember he seemed shady somehow. He constantly wanted to hang out with my brother in his room with the door closed, and my parents insisted that the door remain open instead. In spite of my parents' wishes, that door was often closed, and the two spent many silent hours in that room together almost every night. I told Naomi that my telling her all these things and my desire to write down my memories often triggered something within me that would cause me to remember some detail that I'd long since forgotten until I thought about how I wanted so badly to impress my cousin by showing him I could fly on the swings by lazily swinging back and forth on my stomach with my arms outstretched, I didn't remember that he didn't seem to want to spend any time with me at all and only wanted to spend time with my brother. I clearly remembered that instead of landing on my stomach on the swings when I ran at them, I landed on my head on the other side of them. I barely remember Kyle pretending to care. I do remember him laughing at me running off in embarrassment. I told her that I wondered if something had happened to my brother during Kyle's visit with us. Maybe that's why my brother eventually did what he did to me later on. She nodded with her typical, hmm, response, and I moved on. Honestly, memories from so many years ago can be faulty. Some things stick with us forever. Others get blurred with time. The first time my brother ever pulled me behind the giant evergreen tree on the corner with juniper berries in full bloom, I didn't know what he wanted. I wasn't exactly scared of him. He was my brother. My brother looked out for me. But then he got another little boy and brought him back there with us. My brother said he wanted to play a game. I remember asking if it was a game of hide-and-seek, since we seemed to be hiding already. No, he told me, and the rest of his words are lost in a distant memory, given to a violent desire to forget. I remember him wanting to kiss certain parts of my body. I remember being scared. I remember the cold air biting at my exposed flesh. Flesh that normally wouldn't have the wind scratching against it. I remember the cold of the horizontally lined wall of red brick against my bottom. I remember the bright red shoes on the feet of his friend as he stood there watching what was all happening. And I remember my brother telling the other little boy that they were supposed to take turns. I do not remember the other little boy's name. I've never been great with names. I remember this happening several more times after, but never with the other little boy. 
I remember it was always cold, probably late fall or early winter there in Maryland. I remember the crunchy leaves on the ground around the juniper tree. I remember holding one in my hand and inspecting it closely, trying to ignore what my brother was doing as he told me that it was just a game, but that I couldn't tell our mom and dad or we would both get into trouble. And I remember the day mom caught us. She was so angry. Her entire face turned red and I could almost hear her grinding her teeth, which she hated with a passion. I don't remember what she was wearing that day, but I remember her tone of voice. She was so incredibly angry. She demanded we come out of the bushes right this instant and practically dragged me out by the sleeve of my coat. She'd come outside calling for us when we weren't responding because, of course, we didn't want to get in trouble. She'd spotted us somehow through the tree branches. Part of me wonders if she knew exactly what was going on. She had to have known, as angry as I saw her that day. She had to know. My brother got between my mom and I, so I would have time to pull up my pants. My undies had little flowers on them that day. I don't know why that seemed so important to me at the time, but they were little tiny flowers all over them. My boots were pink. Being pulled out of the bushes was frightening, the tree clawing at my face and pulling at my shoelaces. And as much as I wanted it to be, that wasn't the last day we ever went back behind that tree. Mom had demanded we never go back there again, but of course we defied her. Or rather, my brother defied her, and I was included in the events. That particular juniper abuse ended when winter hit, and we couldn't go outside without multiple layers of clothing on anymore. It never did restart. We had a babysitter the next year who turned out to be an honest nightmare. She was a large, heavyset woman with a station wagon and a special affinity for Playgirl magazine. While she was watching us, we would go all over the military base in the back seat of her car. From there, with no seat belts on, my brother could reach the dirty magazines in the next seat back. They just sat there, opened, outside of their plastic sleeves, on the vinyl seats as though they were the latest issue of Marie Claire. I remember peeking at the cover of one and being curious, but taking a single look at the inside of one and being thoroughly repulsed. My brother was far more interested. The babysitter spanked my brother when she found out what he'd done. We didn't tell on her, though, because, as the babysitter informed us, our mother would most likely believe her, and we'd have to admit what we'd done wrong in order to deserve it. I don't remember her name, but I remember when Mom got mad enough to fire her. I was glad to see her go. So was my brother. We celebrated by drawing on a child's A-frame chalkboard with pink chalk. I illustrated how angry I was with a series of lines, and my brother asked me to draw what I thought a boy's private part looked like. Through much coaxing, I finally drew something that kind of looked like a cloud. He tried to correct my drawing, but we were called to dinner, and I was saved by the tuna noodle casserole. By the time we moved away from Maryland when I was seven, I had endured so much more than anyone could possibly have known and was living in a kind of a fog, not sure how or why all of these little secrets belonged to me. I wasn't good at keeping secrets, but I knew that I needed to, or I'd get into trouble. They were all my fault. I'd been told all along. I was a part of it. I needed to lie. Lying was the only way to avoid being spanked for being such a terrible child. There was only one truly safe place for me, the neighbor Mona. 
She let me eat pasta and watch The Price is Right with her. She taught me some Spanish. She never once spanked me or exposed me to things I thought were dangerous or wrong. I went to Mona as often as I could. I was safe with Mona. And then she moved away. I was crushed. I remember leaving therapy that night in a fog. Some of those things I'd been able to talk about for a long time, but never in detail. A lot of those things I didn't remember clearly until I was face to face with the need to recall. Sadly, those memories came flooding back to me because I had nothing else to distract me from the truth when I was face to face with Naomi. I had no option but to face the facts, and the details were as bright and vivid in my memory as the other boy's bright red shoes were glowing behind the juniper tree. To listen to the rest of this book, you can subscribe to the podcast for only 99 cents a month. It's really not a whole lot of money. You get the entire book for that amount, and you do a great deal to support me and my efforts to get the word out there about my story of, of surviving human trafficking. So please consider uh, supporting this podcast with a 99 cent uh, monthly subscription. It would mean the world to me. Just check the sub- the um description of the podcast and you'll find the subscription link there. Thanks. That's it for tonight's episode. Stay tuned next week for chapter two, The Dog House.